0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. We are being joined by Connor Habib, and we are just dis- continuing our discussion that we had on our live YouTube show, basically discussing Rudolf Steiner and sexuality, or Rudolf Steiner all the way through sexuality. Hi, hey, Connor, how are you?
1: And Good. welcome how are back. You?
0: Good. Well, you know, I think we were just really kind of touching bases, uh, I think, between a little bit of your history um Uh, a little bit of basically where, you know, how you basically got into uh, kind of the Steiner movement, uh, where you've been in your own life. I think we got into some of that, and then we started discussing a little bit within uh, the lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer community as well. Um, But I think there's so much more. I I think we probably, uh, I think our listeners would uh, really like to hear about. We did discuss a little bit about, excuse me, about some of the practices Techniques with uh, with movement um, that you're involved with. I would like to hear um, actually a lot more uh, about this particular movement because again, it's something that I myself, probably like many of our listeners, aren't just very familiar with. And um, you know, if you could maybe share a little bit more with us about uh, about this movement and how maybe it came about. You know, um, currently, you know, um, you know what's involved with it. How does Others get involved with this? This is of interest to them?
1: Sure. So, um, anthroposophy comes from the late 19th, earliest. Early 20th century, um, when Rudolf Steiner was writing and speaking, um, he gave, I think, about 6,000 lectures and developed a a new system of architecture, beekeeping, medicine, uh, a new font, a new system of schooling and agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. He's one of these people that, you know, very sort of Da Vincian kind of person. Um, And so, you know, any of those pathways are a way to get involved, right? If you want to learn about biodynamic farming or if you want to send your kids to a Waldorf school or whatever, those are all ways to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, to get involved, sort of, with the actual philosophy and practice um, of, 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 the sort of spiritual stream of anthroposophy, you can do those things, but you don't necessarily need to know the philosophy to do those things. I mean, people Mm -hmm. buy biodynamic wine and just like the way it tastes and the fact that it doesn't give them headaches the next day. Uh, or people like sending their kids to Waldorf school, but they don't need to know any of the anthroposophical stuff. And in fact, that's one of the tenets of Waldorf's uh, education is that they're not indoctrinating the kids into anthroposophy. Um, it's kind of like the Christian Science Monitor, which, uh, you know, one of its yeah. mission statements was not to spread Christian science, but just to be mm-hmm. a newspaper that uh, had like a little thing every once in a while that was about Christian science. Um, but not to integrate that into the rest of the paper. Um so it, so I think um the I think if you want to sort of get involved in the ideas and the meditations and the occult principles and all that really just have to start reading. And basically, you're going to read and not understand um, mm-hmm. at first. It's like mm-hmm. reading Shakespeare. The language can be confusing, dense, all that. And then what I would recommend is reading the book and then – that you read and then putting it down and then reading it again and -hmm. some books are more conducive to that than others i have a list Mm -hmm. that i give out to people um of books that i think are really good intro and you know they don't even have to be anthroposophical books i think some books by dion fortune for example are really good introductions to anthroposophy without them really being introductions to anthroposophy um i think there are some uh uh, there are some science books that are and, and philosophy books that are good introductions to Anthroposophy. Um, so, so I can express the tenant, like what I think are the foundational tenets of it. Sure. Like. We'd
0: love to hear them. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So these are my ideas of what the foundations of Anthroposophy are. Although not everybody would agree with me. These are mine. Um, so the first is that uh, thoughts are as real as objects. So, Um, that's number one. It's like we tend to think that there's this material world made out of stuff and that our thoughts are just this sort of like little extra thing that we think about those that are created out of our perceptions, all that sort of stuff. But anthroposophy takes thought seriously and seeks to create a sort of a philosophy that continuously links thoughts and objects. Um, Mm -hmm. And that has all sorts of implications. The second is that human consciousness has evolved over time and this is something that a lot of esoteric movements don't really get into but I think is really important it doesn't just mean that the things we think over time have changed like oh well the Vikings thought this and now we think this it's actually that the structure of consciousness what you actually perceive how you perceive it has changed over time so like a really really good evidence for that is the sort of shift in uh, the kind of art we made in the 15th century when perspective suddenly appeared. Um, Suddenly you had all this perspective in Western painting where there was depth in painting. And what what anthroposophists would say is like, that's actually when people started to see things in that kind of dimensionality. It wasn't just that you discovered how to do that in art, that actually changed our perception of the physical world, um, and then our, our paintings followed that, um, and you have all sorts of spatial metaphors that change, mm-hmm. and spatial thinking that changed the discovery of the circulatory system, the idea of the idea of a different dimensionality of the world. I mean we kind of thought that the world was round before, but not spherical in the same way that we, we, we thought after the fifteenth century, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's the second one. I'm just running through yeah, these, but well
2: sure, sure. <laughs> um we've got an okay, hour. Take your time.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> the, the, the third one, which will be familiar to a lot of esotericists is that there's a spiritual world populated by spiritual entities. In fact, that's all there really is. Um, the, the, the world is not made up of things, but of beings in evolving states of consciousness. Um, so, Everything um, is sort of an evolving state of consciousness pushing and pulling into other evolving states of consciousness um, The way to access the inner the spiritual world is by going inward um, into your inner world into your imaginative space um, the way I like to explain that is by using a Grant Morrison Batman reference um, where Batman is sort of you know Grant Morrison wrote about this Batman character that he sort of revived from the 70s, this little imp called Batmite who is from, I think, the fifth dimension. I'm going to get it wrong and some nerd is going to get on my case, but like (laughs) Batmite follows Batman around and he has all these magical powers and Batman says to him, like, you know, what I never really got about you was whether you're actually from the fifth dimension or you were just in my imagination. And Batmite says, well, yeah, the fifth dimension is your imagination. (laughs) You know, so so the the reality, the spiritual reality of our imaginative landscape um, and the spiritual beings that live there. Um, And then finally, the fourth foundation, and if you don't get any of the other ones right, this is fine, is just freedom and compassion, so uh, creating compassion for others, warmth for others, which is another thing that I think a lot of spiritual systems don't emphasize enough, creating real warmth for other human beings and love for them. And when you do that, you generate more freedom in your own personality, which allows you to be more compassionate, which allows you to be more free, which allows other people to be more free, which allows them to be more compassionate. So Mm -hmm. if you can just be loving, then you've got the main thing about anthroposophy down. Um, But that's the hardest one. (laughs) Yeah, so that's
3: it. When you talk about your thoughts being being real, um, do you learn about? I mean, so thoughts can also be damaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if they can be really damaging. Um, So, is part of the study also involved learning to, I want to say, control the thoughts, but master thoughts, or to um, be aware of the thoughts so that the thoughts don't take you to a place where you don't want to go, or don't impede your freedom.
1: Sure. In fact, I would say that that is sort of the main principle, right, is like creating thoughts that are really, that really come out of an intentional place, which is very difficult. I mean, you study Gurdjieff, right? So, right. you know, he said this thing which just haunts people, which is like, you know, when you think that you're really awake and enlightened, that's where you're the most asleep. Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. So, yep. So, so that's really vexing. And, and, and Steiner essentially said the same thing, like... We need to get out of this state of compulsive thinking right. um, and really access true thinking or living thinking as he calls it. Okay. Um, and also, he also says something about feeling and, and willing or, or, or doing, you know. Um, so intentional thoughts, purity of feeling and purposefulness of action, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is sort of compulsive in our daily lives. And that's another good thing. You know, it's like, you know, we're we're the robot, right. As, as, as Colin Wilson will say. Yeah. And, uh, we, we do things automatically. And I, I would say, although Steiner doesn't say this, that's karma. Like, everything that has ever happened in the world always pulls on us and, and pushes us to, and, and, and has this sort of gravity that pulls us into this compulsive state. So something that Rudolf Steiner says, which I think is one of the most beautiful things anybody has ever said, is a total resolution to this free will determinism argument, I think, where he says, we are not... Man is not free. He is on his way to becoming free. Uh, yes. Sorry that he says man and not human. Um, that might just be translation. He is a really early feminist, actually. But he says, man is not free. Is on his way to becoming free. So it's like our baseline is determined. But if we can, every once in a while, just get our heads above the surface and be free, it creates more space for freedom. You know, And the more we do that, the more we move into a space of free will.
3: Absolutely, um, <clears throat> I know in the Gurjief work, many people work in groups. That's generally the accepted way of doing things. Are there is that compulsory in, in your tradition, or how does how does that process happen?
1: Yeah, um, it is and it isn't. Um, I think ultimately the onus is on the individual because, mm-hmm. you know, anthroposophy is really about individualism, which is another thing that it differs from other spiritualities um, in a way. Um, but, but yes, uh, coming together with other people. I mean, it's also Christian, you know, at, at its heart, it's, it's esoteric Christianity yes. in a lot of ways. And so, you know, you can't be a Christian by yourself, you know, you it's know. where one or two people are gathered together in my name. I'll be there. I mean, where two, two or more people are <laughs> gathered together in my yeah. name. I'll be there. And so it's, so, so there's something communal about it. Like you can't love anybody if no one is around. <laughs> so, uh, it's kind of like, it's really easy to be a nice person when you're single, but as soon as you get oh, yeah. into a relationship, you, you know, like, uh, that's when you're going to learn everything about yourself that you need to know. <laughs> so, I think
3: it was, uh, Ram Das who said, if you think that you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. And I think we all, I mean, I I know this, you know, when we're coming into the holidays, it's a perfect time to have this discussion, but you come Uh into the holidays and you're around your family. And uh, I mean, I know for myself, there are behaviors and expressions and thoughts and things that I do that I thought I gave up when I was 12. Um, But, you know, you're back there with your family, all these old relationships, all these old patterns. And I sometimes will sit there aghast. At myself okay i think i got a while to go here
1: totally i think so two things to that first is you know what byron katie says which i love where she says i'm loving lovable and loved until i get the parking ticket you know yeah <laughs> it all goes out the window um and that's sort of like getting your malkut in order it's like get the get the little stuff in order like you know, we we might have grand thoughts about riding some cosmic winged lion into the yeah. future of love, but like, what about when you get the parking ticket? Let's deal with that, you know. And and then the second thing is, um, you were talking about your family, and I was going—I forgot what I was going to say. Um, but it was—but but I totally I totally hear you about the family thing. <laughs> Just the sort of uh, yeah. Uh, Oh, that's who I am, right? <laughs> I, I
3: found uh, yeah, I found something actually that corresponds to what Byron Katie sort of has a Gurdjieff said. Um, he said, let everyone ask himself simply and openly whether he can love all men. Um, if he has a cup of coffee, he loves. If not, he does not love. How can that be called Christianity? <laughs> uh-huh. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you don't have that cup of coffee or when you don't have things just your way. Uh, when yeah when, right. when things aren't just your way, then you find yourself very unloving, hmm. although on the other hand, I
2: kind of dig the idea of coffee as a Christian sacrament
0: <laughs> uh, i I totally agree with you Valentine.
3: you know there are um I think there are some traditions, maybe whether it's the Quakers and the Unitarians, I'm not sure, but the coffee hour is actually considered to be a very important thing. They don't necessarily have a Eucharist service, but that, that time of fellowship. Uh, breaking bread, so to speak, and having coffee together is actually quite important in mm. that tradition um, so i 'm all i 'm with you, Father Tony, and maybe we ought to petition well, you could, you could petition the a j c to start a study group on that particular topic
1: well i love I love that coffee is like um you know i mean you think of French cafes where You know, in this whole French intellectual tradition, people Mm -hmm. meet in cafes and and drink coffee and smoke and talk to each other. I mean, that's a place where communion happens, even if it's not the kind of spiritual communion we're talking about. People get together and talk about serious, serious things over coffee all the time. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and it's often the first thing that you know that happens when somebody approaches you know one of us and you know mm-hmm. says like hey I'm interested in Gnosticism, uh, you know can can we talk about it and that usually happens over coffee sometimes. and then you get
1: and then you get coffee totally. Yeah. Well, that's you know Rudolf Steiner said conversation is the new Eucharist, and I think that that's a really beautiful statement. But he yeah. means real real conversation, which usually doesn't happen over coffee. Let's face it, <laughs> but uh it but- can. But at least has its seed there, you know? Yeah. Um, at, least, at least that's the place that allows you to meet, and then you can have the real conversation, yeah.
3: It, I, one of the interesting things for me is I'm, I'm something of a cultural a- amateur, a cultural anthropologist, and I'm very interested by the, Ah, uh, the old-fashioned corner diner or the corner coffee shop, not the cafe, um but the corner the corner diner or the coffee coffee shop, because these were very democratic institutions. You would walk in there and you might have a and a business executive sitting next to uh, a carpenter sitting next to a housewife sitting next to a mate, and they would all come to have their coffee or their toast or their pancakes or their eggs together. And um, there's a definite energy in these places where you have this, people coming in for sustenance from all over the place, and I'm kind of making it part of my spiritual discipline to go to old-school diners. Not the fashionable retro sorts, but the real ones that never changed. The real ones.
1: That's I love that because I grew up in Pennsylvania, right, and so it's all 24-hour diners there, okay. and that's what I did as a kid, you know. I would go to the diner. Before I could even go to bars or whatever, I would go to the diner and I would stay there um, sometimes till 4 in the morning and I would just talk to the wait staff or the other people that came in or I would write or I'd read you know and I would just order coffee and food all night and just stay there and that is such a huge part of my psyche so I definitely resonate with that yeah Yeah.
3: it's it's, it's become very interesting for me just to make the observations it's not that I'm meditating on other people but they're the energies Mm -hmm. in these places are, are very very interesting and partly because they're so welcoming to everybody Yeah. Um, You know, there's Uh a gentleman in my neighborhood, for example, who has a fairly severe facial deformity. I won't get into what it is, but I have a strange feeling that he's not welcome in many places. Hmm. But he's he's often at this corner diner, and he is welcome there. And he can have a social life there, you know, and it's a warm, safe place for him. For a lot of people, that diner is a warm, safe place. So that's actually become part of my just little spiritual practice is hanging out there and, and Trying to learn, trying to learn from it. So, yeah, you're making me want to go to a but...
1: diner tonight. <laughs> yeah, a diner in L. A. called a uh, Bright Spot, and they have the. Be- I mean, it's just the best. It's just it's open 24 hours, and it's just the best place. They have honey pie. And, like, I just that's the only place in LA that I've gone to so far where I've stayed like really late at night, just read. I read a, I read a book by Kenneth Grant there, and what, or, uh, or no, no, I read a book by uh, Gareth Knight there when, I, when okay. I just hung out and like read Gareth Knight for like hours and, and kept ordering pie. And uh, I gave the waiter my phone number, but he never called me. So oh, there.
3: <laughs> there's a juxtaposition there Gareth Knight and Kenneth Grant. Guess <laughs> I
0: mean,
3: yeah yeah there, there's something right there um, so so I mean we, you know we've talked about Steiner a bit uh, you've mentioned the unfortunate what, what are some of your influences beside outside of Steiner
1: outside of Steiner um, let's see well here's the sort of trajectory of my uh, of my my mental organization so I I went to college and and I, you know as a kid i was really into like horror and science fiction and all that kind of stuff particularly clive barker who really formed a lot of my <laughs> sort of ethics right um and and, and punk rock music and then i get to college and you know i'm really into literature james joyce especially like really important to me i graduate from college and suddenly i'm into like all this really critical theory stuff right mm-hmm. like um all these theorists that you know don't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. so thrilling to me, exciting to me, Derrida and the Lucent and all these people. At a certain point, and I'm reading all these Marxist thinkers, and I come across this book called Marxism and the Native Americans, which is edited by Ward Churchill. And the uh-huh. first essay in that, he says, like, hey, Marxist, thanks a lot for saying you're our uh, ally. But um, guess what, you're still for industrialism and uh, work and you've taken our land as well, so screw you. And I remember that just like blowing my mind and being like, huh, what? what? You know?" And then when I looked more into that, it revealed all these sort of Native American worldviews and I became very interested in that. And I lived in the woods in New England, so mm-hmm. there was that deep connection to that every day I walked outside my door. Um, I, I lived in a town. After all, that was named for someone who massacred uh, Amherst, who massacred uh, uh, who massacred thousands of Native Americans. And so, um, so that really started to introduce me to the fact that there were different structures of consciousness yeah. and perception, and that was hugely important, um, and really opened up my 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 mind, and also showed me that I couldn't, like some New Age people try to do be like a native american like i couldn't like just you know get yeah. a dream and go on a vision quest and stuff in in the same way that native americans did it was like no 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 there's a different structure of consciousness i can't just enter into it yeah. that was so instructive and important for me mm-hmm. um and 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 create a lot of respect um in me for other cultures and then uh and then as I started moving along, I came to Bar and Katie, and that was really important for me too. Just this person who was like, investigate your thoughts, investigate your thinking, see how your thinking and your feeling and your action are all sort of separate, how you negotiate those things, which got me into Krishnamurti, which got me into. And so then eventually I hit Steiner, and I've kind of. I've kind of stayed there, although I haven't stayed there, but it's been like my headquarters. And now I, as I reach out, I sort of like check things back against Steiner a little bit, you know. But also when I was a kid, I was really into comic books. And and the comic books and the idea of superheroes um, has really stayed with me as well. Sure. Because those are angels. I mean, those are spiritual hierarchies finding their way out into our art. And and that was really powerful for me as a kid as well. Yeah.
3: Oh, that sounds like a talk at Gnosis episode right there. Oh, yeah, um, a whole other show in and of uh, itself,
1: yeah. He'll talk your ear about, off about it. He's just all
3: into that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So that, well, yeah, that's, you know, I am always interested in people's, in people's journeys and the people who they're influenced by, so when I said when you brought up Gareth Knight and Kenneth Grant in the same mm-hmm. sentence. I I mm-hmm. had to check. I had to check in on that. I've never been
1: into. Yeah, I mean the 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 esoteric Christianity stuff. I'm not into like Typhonian, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I had a friend who, um, when I lived in San Francisco, he still is a, a member of the the Servants of the Light, which is mm-hmm. directly descended from Dion Fortune, um, and run by Dolores Ashcroft Novicki. Yeah, Novicki. And um, he really got me into Dion Fortune, and and she was really important for me too because it was like I liked Crowley, but I just thought like what you just you just don't seem to care about people enough as much as you do care about people. He did, and he really cared about freedom, but he wasn't. It, it, it just seemed still somehow kind of too angry for me, and so Dion Fortune was a good sort of. Uh, a good sort of softer version and that aligned with Anthroposophy a little bit more for me to begin to understand some of those ideas and also to allow Crowley in more after that as well.
3: Yeah, I I know when I was younger I had a, you know, love-hate thing with Crowley because I thought some of his writing was absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um but there were just aspects of his personality which I just found horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was that was just this this kind of push pull thing. Uh and never mind some of his followers that I encountered. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: um, right. <laughs> yeah. Well Crowley is always an interesting exercise in um divorcing the message from the messenger uh, and yeah. to a certain extent. And not mm-hmm. that that necessarily needs to be done, but I think that everybody who's read Crowley at a certain point needs to have that conversation with themselves saying, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I know this about this individual human being who actually lived and walked around the world, but he also wrote these things, which are interesting. And, you know, how does, how do I justify that in my own brain? I mean, some people are—that's are, what they came to <laughs> the Lima for in the first place, which is fine. But mm-hmm. you know, other a lot of other people I think find have to have to strike right. that balance for themselves.
1: Yeah, and I think I think there's like a certain thing about what. Uh, first of all, I think we're we're talking about that PT Misselberger book. Um, I yeah. think it's Osho Crowley Ger- Gurdjieff. Um, yeah, and after reading three dangerous not,
3: magi, sorry, three
1: dangerous magi—that's what it's yeah. called. And yeah. uh, I think after reading um, all eight billion pages of that, I yeah. I thought, I, thought <laughs> I, I I realized Crowley cared about people and had uh, m- more of a heart than I think most people give him credit for. So I think part of it too is like, what parts of Crowley do you want to emphasize, mm-hmm. and how how do you want to read it, and. Um, I think that that's true with most religious spiritual thinkers that are real yeah. thinkers. It's like you can emphasize parts that are about giving yourself power, you know, if you want. And, and I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything quote unquote wrong with that. But why? Why that? Like, why not something else? You know, at least just think about that. At least consider why you're emphasizing the parts that are about you possessing power, you know. Um, yeah. What is that about? Why do you need power? Um, why, do you want, why do you want it so badly and why do you think you don't already have it you know um, so yeah
3: but maybe for somebody who is living, who is their identity is a, is a position where they don't have a lot of power in society, where they are excluded from the power yeah. structure, that itself actually might be very empowering for them mm-hmm. um, that, you know, so I think that that might be another way of, way of thinking about that, and that we don't all read these folks the same way um, right.
1: No, totally. You're right.
3: And so I think that, that, that that's, you know, that's something to think about. The other thing that you know I struggle with, with my work with uh, Gurdjieff, is that it, there were a number of very legitimate critiques that could be made of Gurdjieff and his character and, and his methods. Uh, same thing with Crowley, same thing with Osho and many other spiritual teachers. But one thing I have found is that this path is not a safe space. It's, it's not, uh, if you're looking for something that perpetually comforts you, um, in fact, what's going on is that you're reinforcing, in my opinion, you're reinforcing the ways of thinking and being that impede your liberation. Um, you're not going to try and get out of prison if you're, if if, if you're real comfortable there.
1: Right. I think, you know, something about Something about Rudolf Steiner is that people hate is that it's a really slow process, yep. right? Like, yep. yeah. and and <clears throat> he developed a system that was the gentlest method for anyone to traverse that would not, like, screw them up and would yeah. not do damage. And as a result, it's very slow. Um, for for a lot of people and that can be really frustrating um i think gurjeef was a little faster you know i think it was a little i'm not saying it was not a lot of hard work or that it didn't take a long time i'm just saying that it was like confront that force of will every single day like see what happens and you know especially with his original you know uh followers and so i think that uh uh I don't know um I think you might even get some sort of more immediate results if you went with Gurjief than you would if you went with Anthroposophy. You have to have a sort of you have to have a sort of uh alignment with Anthroposophy for it to start opening things up for you quickly. And not everybody does, you know.
2: Well, that actually segues nicely into the question that I wanted to ask. Is okay. so you say you have to align with anthroposophy. What what does that look like? Who is the person that is going to benefit from anthroposophy? Here's
3: how
1: I think you can tell. It's a. I don't know if this is true or not. I'm just. I'm actually just making this up right now. But it seemed. <laughs> okay. It's it seemed right. Um, if you close your eyes and you imagine. Uh, a giant rose unfolding in front of your heart, if that feels very natural and unlike any feeling you've ever had before, anthroposophy might be for you. I think that there's something about the Rosicrucian impulse that really aligns itself with anthroposophy. And if when you do that, it feels like something really special and profound, then it might be the right place for you. Um, I, I, I I think that's it. And I think, like you said before, about it being you know, about me doing service, I think there's a real path of service, you know? And I think you have to not want to hurt anybody else. And I'm not holding that up as like a higher value than anything else. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's important to us to punish other people, but we have a lifetime, you know, you, you might be in a lifetime where you don't want to do that anymore. And I think that anthroposophy might be correct there. and, and, And and uh, like you were talking about before, like um, uh, magic and empowering people and all that sort of stuff and spiritual streams empowering people or disempowered. And immediately, I thought of like, well, it's really necessary for us to use spiritual magical. Acts to start uh, dismantling the power structures and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and 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 fighting some of the battles that are uh, available to us right now. And then I thought I just couldn't do that. Like I I I do do that in some ways, I suppose already, but I'm not interested in fighting. Like it's it's like can I awaken love in the people that are in power? And I think that that's an anthroposophical thing too. It's like it's just a different path, you know. It's not. Mm Um, spiritual warriors casting spells against the Nazis like in those novels in like Mourning of the Magicians or whatever. It's, it's a different thing.
3: But it is subversive. Um, totally. You, you've, yeah. taken a, you've taken a subversive path of love and service. And, <laughs> right. um, yeah, that's true. You know, and, and, and that's you know, if you're, and I don't want to put you in, or put words in your mouth or put you in a place that you don't want to be, but uh, sub, subverse, uh, that kind of activity is in fact a part of warfare.
1: Yeah, t- total, <laughs> totally, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I think I am. Um, I vacillate back and forth um, mm-hmm. between wanting. We were talking about this before with sort of Gorgifian or trickster impulses between wanting to just tear everything down yeah. and wanting to just embrace people. <laughs> you know, I stand right on that line, and. and you know, in fact, my birthday is August 23rd, right? Which is the Leo Virgo cusp, which is like, Ooh. I don't actually know my sign, but I do know that that's the strength card in the tarot is like, you know, the virgin embracing the lion and the lion, you know, restraining himself and not attacking her and her restraining herself and not running away. And I feel like my whole life has been this sort of life of standing on on, uh, standing right on the line, like on the ecotone between two different ecosystems, you know.
3: I think you just brought up something very important about that tarot card. That, uh, you know, it's, it's not just the, the lion, be, you know, being, submitting, but she herself is not running away. Right. And uh, Bishop Canterbury and Father Tony and I have talked on this show a lot. In the Gospel of Thomas, there is the language of standing, Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's standing, you know, standing for yourself, or just just standing, appears all through the Gospel of Thomas as a sign of maturity, and and and, and that part that part of you, know, you you progress in maturity towards liberation,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: the notion of standing is right there. So I think that you brought up just something wonderful, which I'm going to have to meditate on now with that tarot card, <laughs> um, because she, you're right. She is not. She did not run away. She mm-hmm. stood and took and and took that risk which i think is incredibly important and powerful Mm -hmm. i I do have a question for you i want to go back a little bit to some of the things that we discussed uh, in the video show and um, you you are an, an adult performer and we've talked a little bit about individuality and how we connect with other people and I got to thinking about how for some people, um, you know, they may be monogamous, they have a sexual relationship with one person, but eventually that relationship Um, can be masturbatory. Basically (laughs) you start seeing that person as an extension of yourself, you you fail to see them as an individual Mm -hmm. and uh, then that's where trouble often gets started in sexual and romantic relationships. Um, Do you feel that your work in the adult industry where you're constantly working with other people and connecting with them in that way, do you think that that helps you um, beyond your work to see other people as individuals? Because you don't have, because you're constantly um, interacting mm. in an intimate way with hmm. individuals who you don't know and you can't take for granted.
1: Yeah. Well, let me address the first part and then okay. the second part. I don't know if I think that becoming masturbatory with your partner necessarily leads to trouble although i absolutely see what you're saying and i mm-hmm. think it can and i okay. think there's a sense in which it can but i also think that there's a sense in which when you start to actually uh shift your relationship dynamic with someone so much so that they become uh uh intertwined with you uh in, in a way that they weren't before that <clears throat> maybe <clears throat> meeting them in a mind space instead of like a body space might be a sign that something healthy is happening. Okay. So I, I just want to just put that out there okay. and I won't, I won't elaborate on it. I just want to sort of put that out there because I have sort of, I agree with what you say and then I also have mixed feelings about what you said. Okay. so That's
3: good. Um, That's why we exchange ideas.
1: Yeah. Now, as far as the second part goes. Um, Yes. You know, in fact, one of the things that that happens with a lot of people who are sex workers of one sort or another is that they become really good hospice care workers, not just surrogates, but they can Mm. work with people who are dying. You know, um, they can work with people who are sick because they're used to encountering bodies that are not... Necessarily, the kind of bodies that other people are attracted to, they might be some people might be repulsed by those bodies, but when you create a sort of healthy detachment from your own body and the bodies of others because you're used to having intimacy with bodies that are not necessarily the body type or the person that you're necessarily into, but you can enact intimacy anyway you you, you gain a sort of power from that detachment
3: I can imagine that I can yeah. imagine that i um yeah that 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 that's really interesting. I'd like to eventually explore that more, but I think the idea of, of that um working in hospice, I think would be just I can understand why an adult performer would would actually translate very well into that into mm-hmm. that field very if interesting.
1: It, if it's healthy, you know, I mean I think the, the, a healthy adult performer or prostitute or stripper or whatever learns that their body is a part of them, but is not them. A -hmm. person who is unhealthy in it immerses themselves even further into their bodies and becomes more identified with their body. And I think it's just, it's very obvious. You can tell from from an insider perspective, I can be like, oh, nope, you're not doing this the right way. You are, you are, you are, you're not, you know, it's just very, when you're in it, you can see it.
2: (laughs) Okay. It's a very Gnostic kind of point of view, you know? Yeah, Your Uh body is a part of you, but there's something higher. Uh Uh-huh.
1: You know, something different. Yeah, definitely.
2: What do you, uh, when you you do uh, sex education classes, what do you talk about? What kind of classes do you Uh,
1: do? Everything. Um, Something I don't, something I'm not into is like, I don't like, here's how you put a condom on. This is how you identify and don't get herpes, like that kind of stuff. I know all that stuff, but that's not... um, I'm not that interested in that. I'm more interested mm-hmm. in, like, what are you thinking during sex? Like, how is this community functioning when it in regards to sex? Like, what are your fears and anxieties? Where do you blame other people for their sexualities? That kind of stuff. Those are the sorts of things I talk about. So I just did this web series for the LGBT Center in L.A., and the first episode was monogamy versus open relationships versus is not the right word, but that's how it's framed in the episode. Um, the other one is, uh, is, uh, um, how to have a sexually healthy community. And then there's one that's about, uh, body image, body dysmorphia, all that sort of stuff. And so it's always something that has either a psychological community, collective conscious component to it for me, because I think that's where real sexual education um, beyond just your body lies. In the community? Well, right. Like, and in your thoughts. (laughs) In your thoughts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, it's like, like one of the things I talk about is you know you're walking down the street like just look at how different our sexualities are like you walk down the street with a friend and you're like hey check out that guy i think he's hot you know and that that guy has like a big belly and like ears that stick out and maybe is like receding hairline or whatever and your friend is like oh him and that's this thing that's like okay we're so different that it's it seems unbridgeable that you could even understand why your friend was attracted to that person or or your friend couldn't understand why you were attracted to that person. It's so hard to intersect, you know? So how do we want to conduct ourselves in the presence of such separateness and such, uh, such difference, you know? And so I always say, like, just, you know, that's desire etiquette. Like, just instead of being like, Ugh, like, you don't have to be on board, but you can be like huh, why do you find attractive about that person? You know, like you can say something else that doesn't put it immediately in a space of, I'm not crossing the bridge, I don't understand, I don't care to understand, and furthermore, you're
2: wrong, you
1: know? Yes.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Okay. You you probably get asked this a lot, but how do you navigate um, America's weird relationship to sex Uh, generally
1: (laughs) how do i navigate it yeah
2: like everybody everybody doesn't want to talk about it but you know everybody's everybody's constantly watching porn and doing whatever they do (laughs)
1: um you know like how do i navigate it i talk about it a lot like if i'm online at whole foods and like i'm with my friend i don't stop talking about sex just because i'm in an inappropriate place because we need to stop amputating it You know, like we need to stop, you know, severing it from our normal discussion. That's part of how I navigate it. It's just like, too bad. That's part of my life. Like, I, you know, I talked to you about what I ate and like what I thought and where I went today. Like, and I masturbated today thinking about um, the guy that fixed my tire, you know, <laughs> whatever. It's like, why is that not part of the discussion? It's like that that's such an, a daily and important part of my thought world and my physical world. And like, so, so that that's part of it. It's like sort of reclaiming this, reclaiming those spaces that it's been banished from and giving it, you know, some voice there. And I think also just looking at history, you know, it's like if the Romans had frescoes of people having sex in their living rooms, like what's, why do we have to go into a a room with no lights and our computer on to look at sexual images with no one else around, you know? So sort of bringing some of those things into it as well.
3: You know, the weird thing was, is that I was preparing for this show. I was thinking about the fact that you know that you that you that you have sex in front of other people and in, in these movies. and It's part of commerce. It's you know that it's they're, they're they're sold and and then I started thinking about well, you know, people will say that sex is a sacred thing. Therefore, it ought to be absolutely private and hidden away. And then I remembered the passage about. Sophia crying out in the marketplace. Wisdom crying out in the marketplace. Um, wisdom is not not whispering in people's ears in the privacy of their own home. There's a crying out in that marketplace. It's All a very right. public thing. And for me, it was like, well, okay wisdom is just such a profound part of my tradition and there she is in the public, in this public sphere Mm. talking. So maybe I should uh, examine my own discomfort or why I brush off people's discomfort with the notion of sex being a part of people's public lives.
1: Right. Yeah, I love that. I love also that I was talking about talking about masturbation at Whole Foods, and then you talked about Sophia at the market. Um, yes, <laughs> I think I think that I think that's awesome. I mean, I think, yeah, I to I to- I totally, I-, I totally hear you. I mean, I think oh, there's. Listen, I might be wrong, right? Like, I'm okay be. with I'm okay with being wrong. That maybe sex is a separate singular thing that is supposed to receive some kind of special attention ritual ritual privacy all that kind of stuff i'm not sure maybe i'm wrong but the fact is even if i'm wrong the way we're doing it now is not right mm-hmm. so the only way to counterbalance that is to is to create an opposing current at first it's like communism is wrong And capitalism is wrong, but you can't really see that capitalism is wrong without communism. You need, like, an opposing current before you can start thinking about other possibilities, you know? So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, I think, is, like, your story about, like, not keeping wisdom sort of uh, secret. You know, there's that story about um, Jesus meeting with the Essenes, right? And how they have this perfect Christian society, but they're perfect because... They, they don't ever leave and they don't let anybody else in. Mm. So it's like, that's not Christian. Like, no matter how perfect you are in your, her, in your hermetically sealed community, if nothing else comes in, then you're not doing it right because the world is open. And yeah. so sex is kind of like that. It's like, how perfect and beautiful can sex be if no one's allowed to see it? You know, and nobody else is involved and no one else is interacting with it. It's like, uh, so I think of that as well.
3: Or it becomes a source of exploitation.
1: (laughs) Totally, and we always we exploit our partners to no end sexually without any awareness, you know. And we and we don't talk to other people. We don't we don't allow anybody into that discussion, you know. We don't allow other um, thoughts or. You know, in monogamy, we don't allow other people in. Um, and I'm not saying don't be monogamous, but, you know, if if the impulse is just uh, nobody else because this is the one thing that binds us together, like, then that's
3: no good. Yeah, know? and <laughs> panicking perpetually that somebody is going to transcend that supposed hermetic bond and um, you know, putting all kinds of restrictions on that person. I, mean, I know of people who have joint Facebook accounts and they'll mesh their names together. Or they, you know, they, they each have each other's email passwords because of this constantly, you know, they're, they're constantly on this tightrope. Or are one of us going to fall into sin? Now, I'm not saying that I think that polyamory is for everybody. Uh, I think monogamy is a, it can be a very powerful thing for people. But when it's based on panic and fear, uh, I think people need to step back a little bit and examine that prison that they 've created for themselves totally well, when it 's based
1: on panic and fear, what that ultimately means is it 's based on the fantasy that your partner will sleep with someone else that you 'll never fulfill it 's like if you 're constantly imagining your partner having sex with someone else what is well you're you have a pretty strong fantasy life about that happening, and Apparently you're constantly you do. frustrating it, yeah.
3: And you might want to you know, head on over to Craigslist and see what's going
0: on.
1: Fulfill my fulfill my Freudian drive panic theory with my life, please.
3: Oh boy!
2: Well, let's shift gears uh, a little bit back to. <laughs> I... <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a podcast. There can't be any dead air. Um, yeah. So. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about um, biodynamics and Waldorf schools and things like that. So of the things that are kind of uh, on that – well, I don't know if I want to say on that periphery, but the, the kind of associated uh, things with anthroposophy, the, the farming and the schools and things, um, how involved do you get with that kind of thing? Do you have a biodynamic farm in your backyard or –
1: I don't do any of that stuff. I mean I planted I planted a tomato the other day and I planted the complementary biodynamic plant next to it with was chives and the tomato tastes good. But I mean I'm not like I'm not grinding up quartz solution and burying a cow horn near my tomato plant at a full moon. So I it's not like I'm not really like I'm not really doing it. Um I'm interested in it. Uh but but for me you know, I mean, I got biodynamic wine at the pizzeria I went to the other night, but I'm not really that into that kind of stuff. I I would be, and I find it fascinating, but I live in L.A. You know? <laughs> it's like, what am I going to drive my biodynamic car to, like the biodynamic bougie cafe, and you know, like have like a Waldorf scone? Like it's not, <laughs> not it's not necessarily available to me in that way. So you know, I don't have kids or whatever. I I just try to be conscious, you know, I mean, there are things that you can do. It's like, it's like, look at your house. If your house is dirty, look in the dusty corners. That's where the elementals have gathered. Um, What does it mean to have a dirty corner in your home? And what does it mean to disperse the elementals that have gathered there? That's something, you know, like that's, that's a practical way to just be anthroposophical, you know, like think about that kind of stuff. Think about the world is composed of beings every once in a while. I do that, you know? Um, so, but no, I, I don't, I don't really have that kind of, and, and honestly, I find some people that are in that, like I find them kind of brainwashed, you know, <laughs> not, I mean, I, I love a lot of those people and I know a bunch of them and I think they're awesome, but there's this whole sort of like Waldorf brand mm-hmm. and, you know, they use Wellita face products, which I love, too. You know, their are biodynamic, wild-crafted iris face moisturizer. feels great. But, like, there's this kind of anthroposophy that I think will become more and more popularized over, you know, the next decade. And it's phony. It's like, well, I'm an anthroposophist because I send my kid to Waldorf school. I eat biodynamic stuff. I buy biodynamic products. And, you know, there, there's almost a sense in which I... I don't even really call myself an anthroposophist anymore because
2: it's being bought and sold now. um, Yeah, it's that same consumerism that happened to yoga and Buddhism.
1: Totally. And so, you know, uh, I think you just have to sort of you just have to sort of back out of it. You know, it's like okay, like oh, you like your biodynamic blueberries? That's awesome. did you know that Lucifer and Aramon were battling over your soul today and that you had to engage with your Christ uh, quality to be able to navigate the tension between them? And that's when people get off the bus, you know, that's, (laughs) that's where I'm interested in going.
2: Yeah. Right. Well, we're coming up to the end of the show here, but um, if somebody were to be interested in Anthroposophy, um, what's the, what's the one thing that you'd, point them towards book or website or something that can get them started?
1: There's a plate, the place I want to learn Gertian science is called the nature Institute. I would look at their site, which is the or it might just be natureinstitute.org. There's, there's a, there's a couple of them is the one that says Gertian science on it. So just go to nature Institute and Goethe G O E T H E and you'll find it. Um, I think they're a great intro. I think, um, and, and they, they won't throw you in the esoteric deep end right away. They'll start you off like you'll look at flowers and animals and stuff like that. And and that, that, that's an easy way in, or um, I would just, uh, I, there's a Rudolf Steiner audio archive where you can listen to some of his books are all free downloads um, and lectures. I think that that's great, but I think, you know, really, I would just find what, Seems to resonate with you, um, resonate with you. And finally, there's a book called Saving the Appearances by Owen Barfield, who was, you know, part of this group, the Inklings, which is C.S. Lewis and yeah. uh, J.R. Tolkien. Um, there's a book by C.S. Lewis, a novel called Till We Have Faces, and that's a great anthroposophical book. It's a novel. Read that. You know, there are lots of ways. in. sorry, you asked for one.
0: And, uh, <laughs> <it's> incapable. <Yeah. laughs>
1: that's okay. Mm. All right, any or, or just go to my blog. I wrote a little four things about Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy on my blog. You could just find that too if you wanted.
2: Yeah, I read that. That was very good uh, yeah, very was good. good overview, <laughs> yeah. All right, uh hosts any any last questions before we sign off here?
3: I think we've covered a lot. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, no problem. Sorry. It was like, I felt like I just kept talking and talking. but no, that's, I think that's
1: why you're good. here. That's yeah. why you're here. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was, it was great to uh, talk with you all.
2: All right. And all just right. a reminder for everybody listening, if you have not yet become a patron of the uh, Gnostic NYC Network, it's not too late. Go to patreon.com slash Gnostic, and you can pledge a little bit of money every time we release a video or podcast. You'll, you're, uh, It'll get added to the pile, and at the end of the month, your credit card will get charged. You can set a monthly cap so you don't get any surprises. And uh, every little bit helps and helps us to create new and better content for you on our network with our various shows. And, and we really appreciate all of our current patrons uh, more and more all the time, and, uh, and, that's, and it's great. So uh, with all of that being said, thanks again, Connor, for being on the show. Thank you. And uh, for everybody listening along at home, we'll see you next week.
3: All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. Good
0: night, everyone.
2: This has been a production of the Gnostic NYC Network. For more information about this and all of the Gnostic NYC Network's programming, visit GnosticNYC.com. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Gnostic NYC, Talk Gnosis, or any other organization. This podcast has been released under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike 4.0 international license. We'll